Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 64, Consuming Fire. Today we conclude Hell Month with a debate that I moderated between Turret and Fan and Ronnie Demler on the topic of annihilationism or conditionalism. But before we get into that, I just have a few things that I want to say. First of all, the uh, the YouTube channel that I uh, that I have created has been receiving some visitations. Uh, one one video that I published called Call on the Name, which comments on a recent debate between Michael Burgos and Anthony Buzzard, uh, has uh, received some comments by people who deny the deity of Christ. Um, they deny my contentions in the video that the phrase Call on the Name means that uh, Jesus is God. Uh, if you'd like to interact with them, as I'm probably not going to take the time to do so, uh, please do visit the, the YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com slash user slash theapologetics. Uh, you can click on that Call on the Name video, and then you can post your comments there. I'd, I'd appreciate your interaction with these people, since I probably won't have the time to do it. Uh, the second thing is that there's been a conversation that I've been having on, on the, the Apologetics Facebook page uh, with a couple of other evangelical universalists uh, on the topic of First Timothy 4.10 and its use of the phrase, Savior of all men, especially for believers. Um, if you'd like to uh, participate in or at least uh, watch that conversation, you're welcome to do so. Um, I feel a little bit ganged up on right now because <laughs> it's uh, two of them against me. But uh, well, and, and so if you do have any thoughts, if you'd like to um, participate, I, I, I'd appreciate it. Uh, the third thing that I want to mention is that, uh, as I posted on Facebook this morning, I'm considering um, getting my feet wet uh, in debate. It's, it's been something I'd like to be able to participate in debates in the future, but I've never participated in one. Um, now, because I am leaning so strongly toward annihilationism, uh, and because I think the evidence is so compelling, I thought that it would be a good uh, debate to... Um, uh, to, to take part in as my first debate, as long as it's with somebody who's not, uh, you know, a super expert in the field like uh, Robert Peterson or Christopher Morgan or something, although I'm not certain that I wouldn't be able to give them a challenge uh, either. But still, so in any case, what I'm trying to get at is that if you're a listener who uh, may have listened to the interviews with Edward Fudge and with uh, Larry Dixon and maybe uh, uh, after listening to this debate as well, you, you find yourself maybe having a little bit of an openness toward annihilationism but still largely favor uh, traditionalism. Um, if that sounds like you, if you don't have a lot of debate experience and maybe likewise would like to get your feet wet, contact me. Email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com. I'm flexible. We can talk about structure. We can talk about uh, you know keeping you anonymous. I, I'm willing to make those concessions. Um, but I, I'd really like to test my understanding of annihilationism and um, you know, see, see how I fare. And, and like I said, I, I'd like to practice so that I can participate in debates in the future. Um, so like I said, yeah, contact me if that's something you're interested in. Next week, um, I'm going to be interviewing Scott Smith of Biola University on the topic of dualism. Um, he has been an outspoken uh, opponent of the form of physicalism promoted by people like Glenn Peoples and Joel Green, both of whom I had on my podcast. Uh, and so I'm going to be interviewing him on some papers that he's written and, and uh, why it is that he thinks that um, uh, the dualism is a, uh, a more plausible view of the uh, mind-body distinction than physicalism. Uh, finally, 
um, after that, after my, my slate is clear. My schedule is, is clear in terms of interviews or debates or whatever. I don't have anything else planned. Um, but before I return to doing some episodes on my own, I may take a break for a few weeks uh, so that I can work on the next installment of Kicking Some Left Behind for Dee Dee Warren. Uh, I've been meaning to do that for some time. I've been putting it off. I have gotten a little bit of it done. But, you know, <laughs> the Left Behind material is just such drivel that it's really difficult for me to get my mind engaged again. But it is something that I uh, committed to doing for Dee Dee. And, um, you know, if she's listening, I, I hope you'll forgive me for taking so long. Uh, but after this last interview that I have scheduled, I'm going to put some um, some effort into it. So anyway, w- that's about all of that I wanted to say. Uh, let's go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation. Well, actually, I- I'm skipping what was going to be the next promo in my rotation, which is for Mary Jo Sharp's Confident Christianity. Uh, I still recommend the podcast, but it looks like it's been on hiatus for some time, and I don't know when it's going to start uh, coming out with new episodes. So I'm going to leave that link in um, on my podcast page under promoted resources, but I'm going to take it out of the promo rotation for now. So the next one that I've got is uh, uh, Real Apologetics with Jamin Hubner. Hey, this is Jamin Hubner for realapologetics.org and the host of the provocative microphone. Real Apologetics has all the basic goals of defending the faith and building up the church, but we give special attention to how this is done. We believe that our theology determines our effectiveness as Christian apologists. We are reformed in our soteriology, covenantal in our hermeneutic, and presuppositional in our method. So check out realapologetics.org. Like just about every uh, resource that I promote, I don't agree with Jamin on uh, everything that I've heard in his podcast, uh, but I've agreed with a lot of it. I find his um, reasoning very uh, challenging in certain areas. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's one of the people who has contributed to my understanding in, in, in favor of uh, presuppositionalism. Uh, as opposed to something like evidential apologetics. And, and when I had him on to defend inerrancy, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think he's a good uh, defender of the topic of inerrancy. So if you want to check out the uh, Provocative Microphone podcast or any of the other resources that Real Apologetics makes available, go to www.realapologetics.org. Um, and uh, I've included a link in my show notes so that if you, for whatever reason, uh, can't find that, um, you can go to the podcast page for this episode and click on the link and it'll take you right there. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into the Turretin fan versus Ronnie debate on the topic of annihilationism. As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Tuesday, October 25th, 2011. But whenever it is you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to this third The Apologetics Podcast debate, this time dealing with what the Bible says is the nature of the eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. In a moment, I'm going to introduce my guests and explain the topic and format of today's debate and then open in prayer. But first, let me repeat the exhortation that I've given in introducing the previous two debates and ask you to listen carefully and seriously consider what each of my guests are going to say today. Like the Bereans whom Luke called noble-minded in Acts 17.11, let us examine the scriptures carefully to see which of my guests' words are true. Uh, you know, I quote this statement often, but I think it bears repeating. As Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries has often said, everyone has traditions, and those most blinded by them are those who do not believe that they have any. 
Perhaps your understanding of the fate of the wicked is based more on tradition than on scripture, but on the other hand, perhaps your understanding is based on your subjective opinion about what God is justified in doing to the wicked. Either way, we must be allow, uh, be willing to bend our knee in belief to what the scriptures say, whether we like it or not, and whether it's consistent with our tradition or not. So with that exhortation out of the way, I'd like to introduce my guests who will be debating one another today. Turton Fan is a reformed apologist and blogger. He has done a variety of debates on subjects ranging from the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the bodily assumption of Mary, as well as the most recent debate with Jason Pratt on universalism. He holds to the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 and its subordinate standards as a concise summary of the important doctrines taught in Scripture. The Scriptures, however, are his sole infallible rule of faith and life. Turton Fan, thanks for being here today. Friend and listener of the show, Ronnie Demler, is an evangelical Christian and received his B.A. in philosophy from Biola University in 2003. He is presently a graduate student of philosophy at California State University in Long Beach, runs the Consuming Fire blog, and required that I state that he has dashing good looks. Thank you as well, Ronnie, for being here today. Thanks, Chris. With those introductions out of the way, let me explain today's debate. The proposition of today's debate is this. Unsaved humans will suffer everlasting conscious torment. Turretin Fan affirms the proposition, and Ronnie denies it. Turretin Fan and Ronnie have agreed to this format. Turretin Fan will begin with a 20-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Ronnie's 20-minute opening. Turretin Fan will give his 15-minute rebuttal, followed by Ronnie's 15-minute rebuttal. And at that point, two periods of cross-examination will commence, each beginning with 10 minutes of questions to Turretin Fan from Ronnie and ending with 10 minutes of questions to Ronnie from Turretin Fan. Following cross-examination, I will ask four questions each to Turretin Fan and Ronnie, alternating between them. The one to whom the question is directed will have two and a half minutes to answer, and his opponent will have 60 seconds to follow up. Finally, we'll wrap up with Ronnie presenting his 10-minute closing statement, followed by Turretin Fan's 10-minute closing. We may add a couple of places, pause the recording to take a break, but you won't need to do any fast-forwarding or anything. I'll take care of editing those breaks out. And so with all that out of the way, uh, I'd like to uh, open briefly in prayer, and then we'll begin. Our Father in Heaven, I thank you so much for the opportunity to listen to the, these two uh, brothers um, debate what your word says is the nature of the fate of the wicked. Lord, I know that I've uh, wavered from one direction to another, and um, and I'm sure that others have as well. Some others, I think, are um, believing what they've been taught uh, and are not critically analyzing it, and others might be believing an alternative for what might be unjustified reasons. I pray that whichever one of these views is correct, if either of them is correct, I pray that that um, would be revealed today, that you would uh, make that clear to those listening and those participating, um, which of these views is biblical. Uh, and also I pray, Lord, that you would um, that you would move in each of our hearts, those participating, myself and, and, and those listening, you would move in our hearts to, uh, uh, to, to soften us, to be willing to accept whatever it is that your word says, even if it might not be what we presently believe. Um, we pray that uh, this debate would be to your glory, um, and we thank you in your son's name. Amen. Okay, Turretin fan, if you are ready to go, uh, as soon as you begin speaking, I'll go ahead and start your 20-minute timer. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. This topic that we're about to discuss is a very serious topic and somewhat grim. The topic is the topic of hell, and specifically the scriptural doctrine that those who are not saved will undergo an eternal damnation in which they will suffer and this suffering will have no end. It's a horrible thing to consider. It's a horrible prospect. 
And hopefully it's an encouragement to anyone who's listening to this debate who does not believe to there's no greater mistake that one could make in this life than to refuse to bow the knee to the Lord God who made heaven and earth, who will one day destroy it, and who is able to destroy body and soul in hell, as, as, as it's said in scripture. My main points today will be that there is a judgment coming, as I've mentioned, that it will be an eternal judgment, that some will undergo this judgment, and that this judgment will involve uh, conscious torment for the people who are undergoing the, the judgment. I'll begin my discussion uh, in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, 22 through 24 states, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So what this passage is teaching us is that in the life to come, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, the wicked will be in this state of abject misery, this state where they have a worm and that worm doesn't die. The worm requires a host and they have a fire that will, will not be quenched, which requires fuel. And that fuel is them. They are the ones with the worm eating at them and the fire burning them. And they'll be uh, ashamed. They have this, uh, they're an abhorring unto all flesh. Christ himself quotes this and speaks to that it is hell, so that we have a, we have not just my interpretation, this is a reference to hell, but Jesus' own uh, divine interpretation. He says in Mark 9, 42 to 48, And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that, sh that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, it is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And this seems to be an allusion back to the, the passage in Isaiah 66, 24, but in any event, it's clearly a reference to hell. In fact, he refers to it as hell fire. The, there's a, additional references that make us think this unquenchable fire talks about hell. For example, Luke 3:17. And Mark, Matthew 3.12 describe uh, God this way, whose fan is in his hand, and he will pur thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. It's, there's very similar wording in Matthew. I read the Luke version. Uh, moreover, we can see this same 
the same principle uh, being expressed in a similar account in Matthew 18. The account I had originally read you was Mark 9, but there's a the account in Matthew 18 says, and I'm reading from verse 6 of Matthew 18 through verse 14. It says, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, Pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if it so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Referring back to the, the, the everlasting fire. The... The next passage, which I'll read to you, which, which establishes this same point, is Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, there's a, an account of Judgment Day, and I will read you verses 31 to 46. In that passage it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now this 
expression everlasting punishment is placed in close parallel to the life eternal. This is one way in which we can see that this previous references to the wor- their worm dying not and the fire that's not quenched, which suggest that the person is undergoing this forever, but which specifically refer to the fire and to the worm, we can see that these, also, these are applied to the person forever from this uh, expression, this everlasting punishment. And we see something similar in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which I'll, I'll just briefly read. Uh, or, well, well, I'll read in uh, verses, starting at verse 8, v- reading through verse 10. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Verse 10, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed, in that day. Now this verse, uh, as well, uh, really clinches the point that we're trying to make. In other words, this verse tells us that there is an everlasting destruction coming. Now if this were a mere uh, consummation, a mere consumption of the people, and it would be strange to call it everlasting for ever, it would have an end. It would have a beginning because there's a punishment and this implies that it's applying to the person that they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. So this is, of course, for the wicked, for those who are unbelievers. The... There's another passage which speaks of eternal fire, which is frequently brought up in these types of discussions. That's Jude 7, where it says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, this might be, this might strike someone as curious. How could it be that the men of Sodom and Gomorrah who were consumed in a matter of minutes, perhaps, but quickly consumed, even if it took days, how could they be, su- they be said to have suffered the vengeance of eternal fire? Well, the answer, of course, is that they suffered a, f- a foretaste of what's coming. In other words, the punishment that will be meted out on the Day of Judgment will be fire, like fire and brimstone type fire, that such as was rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, but it won't be only for a short time. This fire that's to come, which that typified, is the eternal fire. And therefore, in, when we when we consider Sodom and Gomorrah's fire, we won't we we wouldn't view that as actually an eternal fire. Nevertheless, we view that as a picture and a demonstration of the kind of punishment, a horrible, agonizing punishment that's coming to those who do not believe. There, are, there may be many other, uh, there may be many other points that we could make in an, an analysis such as this. For example, the book of Ecclesiastes provides us with a, a certain points which we ought to, we ought to consider when we're, when we're discussing this topic of what happens to man after death. 
Ecclesiastes is written in a style that's sometimes difficult to follow, but in Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 22, we have a passage which describes the state of man after death. First, I'll read the passage, starting at verse 19. For that which befalleth the sons of man, excuse me, which befalleth the sons of men, befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence over a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are, are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of be- the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Now, this passage admittedly may seem a little obscure at first, for the, the writer seems to be suggesting that actually the soul of man is like the soul of a beast, which is simply uh, annihilated upon death. There's no, this, it just goes down to the earth as it's described here. But verse 21 is posing the, the, the truth as something that people don't know, that they're, that they're uncertain of, uncertain of. They don't know that the spirit of man goes upward. In other words, they don't realize that man lives on after death. And that this is a difference between man, men and animals. All men have the immortal soul, and that's one distinguishing characteristic between men and, and animals. This and why those who are being punished in hell will be punished in in an eternal way. There's no end to our spirits when we die. Our spirits don't cease to be, neither the spirits of the wicked nor the spirits of the righteous. Another path can be brought into this conversation is Revelation 22:11. Again, it's something of a less clear passage, but this passage describes the state of man after death. It states, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. This describes the state of man after the, after the judgment of God. Those who are unrighteous stay unrighteous. They don't cease to exist. They don't uh, simply pass out of existence. They stay in a state of unrighteousness, whereas those who are justified by the grace of God remain in a state of righteousness and holiness. So to, to summarize what I've described today, we've seen that in Isaiah 66, we're warned that in the afterlife, when there's a new heavens and a new earth, there will be those who will, for time immemorial, that is from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, will come and worship the Lord and will go forth and see those who are being punished for their sins. This punishment is described as having a, being burned with an unquenchable fire and being eaten by a worm that doesn't die. Moreover, we are warned in Mark 9 that this is, the, the, this is what will happen to those who are cast into hell, those who don't believe, who 
have these sins brought up to their account. This fire is sometimes talked about as burning up, but it is described as an unquenchable fire. If the fire had only a limited amount of fuel, ultimately it could only be a picture of the final unquenchable fire. In Matthew 18, we're told that this fire is everlasting. And in Matthew 25, we are informed that the punishment that the unrighteous will receive will be an everlasting punishment, which is compared in terms of its duration to the life eternal that's given to the righteous. So for that, and again in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, we're told that the wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction. So for these reasons, because the, there is judgment coming, it will be an eternal judgment, it will be... Uh, Suffer, some will suffer this judgment, and those who suffer it will be conscious. We, sh- we should affirm this resolution, but we should affirm, affirm it in a serious manner, taking account that we, we are trusting in Christ for salvation and not relying on our own, sin, well, on our own merits, which are, in fact, uh, nothing better than, than relying on sins. Uh, Ronnie, um, I will go ahead and start your 20 minutes as well as soon as you uh, begin speaking. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Chris, for putting this debate together, and thank you, Turretin Fan, for participating. A few quick things before I start. Uh, regarding terminology, I'll be using the word traditionalism to describe the view that Turretin Fan is defending, and I'll be using the word conditionalism to describe my view, uh, which for the purpose of this debate... I'll use more or less synonymously with the term annihilationism that many of the listeners here are probably familiar with. And that's the view, and I'm quoting a traditionalist scholar here, that those who die apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ will be ultimately destroyed. Also, I'll be using the uh, ESV translation unless otherwise specified. Now, my contention tonight is that unsaved human beings will not suffer everlasting torment. This contention will be substantiated by three independent arguments. My first argument is that scripture nowhere teaches that any human being will suffer everlasting torment. In fact, and this is a claim that I would love to be challenged on in cross-examination, not one verse of scripture explicitly attributes everlasting torment to a human being, not one. And in my estimation, there are only two passages in the entire Bible that could even plausibly be interpreted as teaching the everlasting suffering of humans. And Turretin Fan mentioned neither. Uh, now, Turretin Fan just presented some passages that he thinks teach everlasting. I'll show in my rebuttal that they in fact teach no such thing, and in many cases actually support my view. So to recap, argument one is that scripture does not positively teach that unsaved humans will suffer everlasting torment. Since this argument is essentially a negative claim, I'll need to wait until my rebuttal and cross-examination to bear it out more fully. Argument two, if unsaved humans are tormented forever, then they must be alive forever. But the consistent teaching of scripture is that immortality is a gift that is only bestowed upon the condition of faith in Christ. This is a consistent theme, for instance, in the writings of Paul. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.10 that Christ quote, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how do humans obtain immortality according to this passage? Only through the gospel. In Romans 2.7, Paul says that God will grant eternal life to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. 
So again, immortality is something that must be sought after and granted. Immortality is not a universal trait or expectation. In 1 Corinthians 15.53, in speaking of the resurrection bodies of the saved, Paul says that this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So again, immortality is something that believers will be granted at the resurrection. Uh, think back to what happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and were punished for their transgression. Look at what God had to say about the issue of immortality in verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So Adam and Eve were cut off from the tree of life, and humanity lost out on immortality. But in the last chapter of Revelation, we see a reappearance of the tree of life. It is located inside the New Jerusalem, which we are told will only be accessible to God's people. So the symbolism is clear. Only God's people will live forever. Now, contrary to this straightforward and unambiguous teaching, traditionalists must affirm the universal and unconditional immortality of all human beings. They must either affirm that all people are created with souls endowed with inalienable immortality, or affirm that all human beings are bestowed immortality at the resurrection. For example, Article 37 of the Belgic Confession states that the evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Or check out this quote from John MacArthur. He says, Every human soul is immortal. No soul, no inner person, and any human being ever goes out of existence. Every human being ever born lives forever. Our bodies die, our souls go on eternally. We are created immortal. And one more example taken from a recent interview of Christopher Morgan on the Stand to Reason radio show. Now, just so everyone is clear, Christopher Morgan is one of the foremost defenders of traditionalism, and he's often consulted as an authority on the issue of hell. In discussing Daniel 12.2, the host, Greg Kokel, makes this comment. That's one of the passages that does talk about the resurrection. Everybody lives forever, but not everybody has the quality of life that those who have eternal life have, to which Morgan replies, right, that's right. Now, these statements fly directly in the face of the biblical teaching on immortality that I just outlined. Nobody is born immortal, and not everyone will be granted immortality at the resurrection. God will grant individuals immortality only if they meet a certain condition, faith in Christ. The view I hold is consequently known as conditional immortality, or conditionalism for short. So, to recap argument two, endless torment requires that the one being tormented be alive forever. But scripture teaches that endless life is only granted on the condition of having faith in Christ. Therefore, those who never put their faith in Christ will not suffer endless torment. Argument 3. Scripture plainly, frequently, and unequivocally teaches that unsaved people will be destroyed. From Genesis to Revelation, in every single genre, and almost every single book, the simple and straightforward teaching is that, in contrast to the righteous who will live forever, the unrighteous will die, perish, and be destroyed. Let's first look at some of the imagery employed by biblical authors to describe the fate of the unsaved. 
In Matthew 3.12, John the Baptist, speaking of Christ, says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that's from the NASB. In Matthew 13.30, Jesus concludes the parable of the weeds by saying, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And later on in the chapter, Jesus interprets the parable. He says, The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's likely that John the Baptist and Jesus are both alluding to Malachi 4, where the Lord is speaking of the great day of judgment. Verses 1 through 3 read, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now look, it's not just that Jesus, John the Baptist, and Malachi use images of weeds and chaff being thrown into fire. They actually go one step further and explain what the fire will do to the weeds and chaff. John says that the chaff will be burned up. The Greek word there is katakayo, and it literally means to be consumed by fire, to literally burn up so that nothing is left, which is why I use the NASB, because it properly renders katakayo as burn up. Now, that word is used in Acts 19, for instance, to describe spell books being burned up by the converted magicians. Now, it's that same word that is used in the parable of the weeds twice to describe what happens to the weeds. Malachi explicitly says that the wicked will be stubble or chaff that is set ablaze, so that nothing but ashes remain, leaving them neither root nor branch, he says. Nothing will be left of them. Now, if Jesus wanted to communicate that people will be sustained forever in torment, why would he use images of weeds being burned up in fire? Why not use an image of stones or metal being subjected to fire without being consumed? This is exactly what Paul does, for instance, when he describes how the works of believers will be tested on the last day. In 1 Corinthians 3, he uses gold, silver, and precious stones to describe good works, and wood, hay, and straw to describe bad or worthless work. Paul says that the good work will withstand the fire without being consumed, whereas bad work will be burned up. And again, the word he uses is katakayo. The only possible response for the traditionalists is to say that I'm pushing the imagery farther than the authors intended. That yes, while the unrighteous are compared to chaff that is consumed, that doesn't mean that the unrighteous will really be consumed. But look at what the author of Hebrews says in 10.27. Without using imagery of weeds and furnaces, he just plainly warns that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The word translated consume is estheo, and it literally just means to eat up. Bauer's lexicon gives a secondary related definition of to do away with completely, and it lists Hebrews 10.27 as using that definition. 
Now, if a person is completely burned up and consumed by fire, well, that person can't also be tormented forever. But the traditionalist is committed to the notion that human beings will in fact be tormented forever. So the traditionalist is forced to deny the plain teaching of Scripture, that God's enemies will be consumed. For example, Thomas Aquinas, speaking of the lost, says, Likewise, they shall be passable, because they shall never deteriorate. And although burning eternally in fire, they shall never be consumed. Jonathan Edwards writes, And here the bodies of all the wicked shall burn, and be tormented to all eternity, and never be consumed, and the wrath of God shall be poured out on their souls. Spurgeon, in a cheerful little passage, writes, In fire exactly like which we have on earth, thy body will lie asbestos-like, forever unconsumed, all thy veins roads for the feet of pain to travel on, every nerve a string on which the devil shall forever play his diabolical tune of hell's unutterable lament. Now, I could go on for a long time, and in fact, my most recent blog post contains eight such quotes, and I could have used a lot more. The point, again, is just how incredible it is the way traditionalists have brazenly contradicted scripture here. Moving on, if traditionalism were true, we would expect most descriptions of final punishment to include words such as torment, pain, suffering, agony, and so forth. In fact, what we find is that the overwhelming majority of passages describing final punishment do not use those descriptions, and instead use words such as perish, destroy, destruction, death, die, uh, abolish, and so forth. Here's just a small sample of what we normally find. Let's first look at some of Christ's teachings. In Matthew 10:28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, this is the passage that gives us the most detail about what will actually happen in Gehenna, or hell as it's usually translated. Will sinners be tormented forever there? Will they suffer extended periods of time? No, they will be destroyed. The word translated destroy is apollomy. Now, apollomy simply does not mean to torment. It never means that. And in this context, it can't mean something like to ruin Because in the synoptics, whenever the word is used transitively of human beings, it always means something like to slay. For instance, in Matthew 2.13, the angel warns Joseph to flee, for Herod is about to search the child to destroy him. Matthew 12.14 says that the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. So Matthew 10.28 is especially problematic for traditionalists who are dualists, because it indicates that in Gehenna, both the body and the soul will literally be killed. In Luke 13, speaking of the Galileans who had been murdered by Pilate's soldiers, um, Jesus remarks, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here Jesus compares the fate of those who refuse to repent with the fate of those Jews who were slaughtered by Pilate and those who were crushed by a collapsing tower. Now, I'm sure there was a level of pain involved in both of those fates, but the focus here is not the suffering. Rather, it's the actual death, the perishing, as Jesus says. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus warns us to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Or what about this obscure passage, John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the repeated contrast here is not between two types of life, one in bliss and one in misery. The contrast is between life and death, life and destruction, life and no life at all. In fact, in John 3.36, Christ says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Traditionalists turn this teaching on its head. John Gill, for instance, writes that the soul in torment shall never die or lose any of its powers and faculties. Spurgeon affirmed that thou art a fallen creature, having only capacities to live here in sin and to live forever in torment. Evangelical philosophers Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland, while arguing against conditionalism, write, it is clearly more immoral to extinguish humans with intrinsic value than to allow them to continue living in a quality, excuse me, to allow them to continue living in a state with a low quality of life. Not surprisingly, the Apostle Paul in his letters says nothing at all that even remotely sounds like everlasting torment. What he does say about the final, about final punishment sounds exactly like what the rest of the Bible says about final punishment that the unsaved will die, perish, and be destroyed. Here's a sampling. Romans 2.2, 2, for, for all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Second Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Philippians 3.19 Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Again, traditionalists must deny the plain teaching of scripture here. Jim Wallace, for example, of the Please Convince Me podcast, writes that hell's occupants will, quote, not be destroyed but instead will be left in a conscious state to experience the torment and anguish of their punishment forever. Greg Kokel, while discussing, excuse me, while discussing Matthew 25:46, concludes of the unsaved, no, men are not destroyed, they are in torment. In the book of Acts, there is not one statement that sounds anything at all like everlasting torment. Now, isn't it strange that in all the recorded evangelistic sermons of Acts, not once do any of the apostles mention or even hint at everlasting torment? But in Acts 3.23, Peter, citing Moses, says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The Greek word for destroyed there is uh, very strong. In fact, the Net Bible Translator notes reads, Context makes it clear that failure to obey the words of this prophet like Moses will result in complete destruction. Moving on, James 1.14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 5.19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back... Let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Lastly, in 2 Peter 2.6, 2, 
We learn there that God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, I love the, na- the Net Bible translator notes for this passage. It says that the first part of this verse more literally reads, and if he condemned to annihilation the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by turning them to ashes. The notes further indicate that the second part of the verse would more literally read, an example of the things coming to the ungodly. So in other words, Peter here is teaching that being reduced to ashes and condemned to extinction and annihilation is an example of what is coming to the ungodly in the future. So to recap argument three, far from teaching everlasting torment, scripture undeniably teaches that unrepentant humans will ultimately be destroyed. It does so by one, employing unmistakable images of destruction, and two, plainly describing the fate of the unsaved people using expressions such as destroy, destruction, kill, die, death, perish, consume, and abolish. Thank you. Francis, uh, sorry, it's written fan. Um, when you begin talking, I'll start your 15-minute timer. All right, thank you very much. The arguments that we've heard were essentially three folds. The first argument was that scripture nowhere teaches and not in not one verse explicitly that there's eternal conscious torment coming. Now I would dispute that contention. One of the verses which speaks to this is the uh, passage in Matthew 25 verse 46 where it says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Nevertheless, there's There are other verses as well which speak of this unquenchable fire, the everlasting damnation, and so forth. There's actually a number. I've brought them up in my original discussion. There's no no reason for me to simply rehash those points since I've already made them and he hasn't yet addressed them. We'll we'll have to address any of of his discussion of those verses, I suppose, in concluding remarks or in the cross-examination. Nevertheless, let's... Let's carefully consider the second point, which is that immortality is a gift from God, that eternal life is the reward for following God, and that therefore, since eternal punishment requires some form of immortality, that therefore we cannot have eternal this eternal conscious torment because uh, that immortality is just simply a gift from God for as a reward for obedience. Of course, it isn't. It, while it very well may be true that eternal conscious torment requires eternal conscious existence, and while that may be some kind of immortality, it's hard to see this kind of immortality as favor from God, except to the extent that it's viewed that somehow it would be worse to be annihilated than to be in eternal conscious torment. I don't believe that... There's a, there a, one of the passages I read talked about it would be better for the person to have a millstone hung around them ne- their neck and then cast into the sea than, uh, than to receive these sorts of... Uh, punishments associated with those who offend one of these little ones who believe in me. But 
I, th- I think it may be just speculation as to which is worse. In any event, it certainly is negative and punitive to suffer eternal conscious torment in hell. This is not an argument that those wicked are going to receive something, uh, a reward uh, in, a, in positive terms for their wickedness. No, they're going to receive a harsh punishment for their wickedness. That harsh punishment is described, and this kind of touches now on the third point, but that harsh punishment is described in terms like abolish, uh, death, destruction, consumption, uh, many uh, very dire words, the, the strongest sorts of words that we have to describe the types of punishments that exist. For us, the strongest type of punishment is a death sentence. We don't have some, we don't have any way of, of imposing eternal conscious torment on people. So there's no, uh, there's no type of that that we can, that we can describe except perhaps something like a lengthy jail sentence, which in fact is described in one of Jesus' parables about the, the man who's consigned to, to suffer in this jail until he's paid the uttermost farthing. But that may be somewhat of a digression. There's another reason why we may discard this idea that the uh, that, that this death that's coming and this really gets to that third point again that this death or destruction that's coming is limited to annihilation and that it doesn't encompass also an eternal conscious torment the reason why we would think that is not simply to preserve a tradition of, of men for example I, I certainly don't view something as having an ancient lineage as being the the compelling reason to believe in it, the fact that you can find the same thought for the last thousands of years does not, uh, that that is not the reason that we adopt it. You may find someone in that same time period who had a different view. That wouldn't be a reason to accept the, the alternative view, nor is that reason the reason to accept this. The reason to accept it is that we're told that the pe- person is going to be cast into everlasting fire in Matthew 18, 8. eight that they'll suffer un- everlasting punishment in Matthew 25:46 that they'll be punished with everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1:9 and uh, they'll uh, they'll suffer the uh, eternal fire described in Jude 1:7 the reason as well is that that humans are immortal as described in Ecclesiastes 3:21 and that men will continue in their current state uh, as uh, in Revelation 22:11 but what then of this death and destruction? And what of the issue of resurrection, which is viewed as a resurrection uh, unto eternal life for the, those who believe? Well, Scripture does provide us with illumination on this point. It doesn't leave us to wonder whether the plain language of everlasting fire or eternal destruction needs to be compromised or the plain language of death and destruction and consumption needs to be uh, compromised. Instead, we can uh, have both. The reason we can have both is that this destruction and death and consumption is explained in, in terms that uh, that harmonize with one another. For one example of one of the uh, one of the dis- these harmonizing passages is John 5:28 through 29. John 5:28 through 29 says, "Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming." in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and they shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, 
and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now, this tells us that there is a de- resurrection, a general resurrection, that the afterlife, but also for the wicked. However, the resurrection for the righteous is described as a resurrection of life, whereas the resurrection for the wicked is described as a resurrection of damnation. So there we have a contrast with both people being resurrected, but only the righteous resurrection being called life. This shows us that the contrast between life and death in the afterlife is not one that's necessarily a distinction between uh, one being immortal and the other being mortal, but a a description of the, the pleasantness that's received by those who are believers, which is described as life, bliss. Uh, Those who do not believe, it's described as damnation. We see this also described as the second death. Revelation 2.11 says, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, what's implied there is that there will be others who will be hurt by the second death. That's the, that's the suggestion of this pain and suffering, the hurt of the, of the second death. It's only a suggestion since the hurt of the second death could just mean experience the second death. But Revelations 26, excuse me, Revelation 26 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then Revelation 20:14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And then Revelation 21, 8 says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So they will have their their portion, their part in this lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, and that lake is the second death. That uh, participation in the the burning and the fire and the brimstone, of which Sodom and Gomorrah's punishment was a was a foreshadow. Those are those provide us with some examples of exactly the the kind of thing that we are we're talking about. And they harmonize for us the fact that it's a second death, and yet it's also an eternal conscious torment that continues on. We were told, we were, we, we were brought up a, a number of different passages, which, which harmonize because even though they talk about death or killing or so forth. One I'd like to specifically investigate is Matthew 10, 28, which talked about the ability for some to kill the body and uh, kill the body and soul, but not, uh, or be able to kill the body, but not be able to kill the body and soul in hell. What's interesting is that's that's the uh, reading in Matthew 10:28. But if we turn over to Luke chapter 12, verse 4, we have. This uh, saying, it says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that can 
kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Verse 5, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So the the fear is that there is something beyond death that is, uh, is something they should be uh, concerned about. It's not only uh, harm that they can experience in this life, but harm that they can experience in the next life. If they simply cease to, to exist, then the harm that they are that they are uh, experiencing in this life can hardly be uh, any more serious, whether it's man that kills them or the, or God that kills them. What's what should concern them is this being cast into hell, and it's this description of being cast into hell or into a lake of fire, or into uh, Gehenna, which is this you know, place of burning. And smoking pit, and sometimes described as outer darkness. The, this is the reason for the traditional view. In other words, this traditional view didn't come out of nowhere. It comes from the scripture. The reason why we believe what we believe is not uh, an attempt to sort of fly in the face of the verses that talk about destruction, but simply a matter of allowing scripture to interpret scripture, comparing the verses that describe an everlasting punishment with those that describe death, and finding the verses that harmonize the two and explain that the second death will be a participation in this lake that's burning with fire and brimstone. Um, <clears throat> all right, Ronnie, if uh, you're ready to go, I'll go ahead and start the 15-minute timer as soon as I hear you begin to speak. All righty. Uh Let's go ahead and take a look at some of the passages uh, that Turton Van mentioned. Um, I didn't mention them in my opening because I wanted to have my my, you know, my own positive case. Uh, now will be the appropriate time to address them. Um, and I hope I get everything here. He started out, I believe, with Isaiah 66, 24, um, which surprises me. I'm, I'm not sure why uh, traditionalists um, think this passage is compelling. Um, it's a scene of, of God destroying his enemies. And if you actually read what the text says, it says nothing at all about torment. Um, verse 16, it says, For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice, shall come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new, mu- new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And here's the key verse, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So, uh if we just look at what Isaiah 66 itself has to say, it says nothing at all about suffering. Um, I mean, I guess there's a suffering of being uh, slain and slaughtered by the Lord, but the worm and fire are afflicting corpses. Um, now, 
make a point about unquenchable fire because it's used here and Turretin Fan mentioned it a number of times. Uh, Turretin Fan er, is wrong to say that unquenchable fire implies fire that I guess torments forever or even to say that it's fire that literally burns forever. That is not how scripture uses the expression. And even in English, that's not what it means. You know, if a firefighter says, oh, this forest fire is, is unquenchable, well, that doesn't mean that it's going to burn forever. That just means that nobody could put it out. Eventually, it's going to die out on its own, but that doesn't make it quenchable. Um, more to the point is how scripture uses the expression. Um, look at Jeremiah 17:27. This is the Lord speaking. He says, but if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So the Lord's going to kindle a fire that's unquenchable. What's it going to do? It's going to devour the palaces of Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that it's going to literally burn forever. That's not what quench means. Um, look at Ezekiel 20, 45-48. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward the southland. Preach against the south and prophesy, prophecy against the forest lands in the Negev. Say to the forest of the Negev, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will kindle a fire in you, and it shall devour every green tree in you and every dry tree. The blazing flame shall not be quenched, and all faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it. All flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. And there's a number of other passages. You could look at Isaiah 1, 27 to 31, Isaiah 34. They all use this exp- expression of unquenchable fire, but I, I think the problem is people come into these passages thinking that well, they just know what unquenchable means. It means burning forever. But you need to actually look at how Scripture uses these expressions. Same with the undying worm. I mean, the worm of Isaiah, first of all, it's a consuming worm that's eating bodies. But to say that a worm will not die is not the same thing as saying that a worm will never die. And I don't want to be pedantic, but I mean, there's obviously a difference. You know, if, if you go to the doctor with a, a lump on your arm and, and you say, doctor, am I going to die? And he looks at it and he'll say, uh, no, you will not die. He's not saying that you'll never die. When you say that something will not die, the extent of the not dying is limited by the context. I mean, in the case of Isaiah 66, the worm not dying is clearly in parallel with the fire not being quenched. The the message is clear. It's basically saying the worm are not going to die prematurely in the same way that the fire will not be quenched prematurely. They're going to do their job. Well, what is the job in this case? It's to consume these dead bodies of God's enemies that have been left out. Um. Moving on, uh, let's go ahead and look at Mark because Jesus quotes Isaiah in Mark. Um, the same principle here. Uh, Mark mentions nothing at all about torment. It mentions nothing about suffering. Now, Turretin Fan is assuming that by fire and worms is referring to suffering, but the text doesn't actually say that. Um, I don't think Turretin Fan wants to say that worms and fire must imply suffering because if that's the case, then Isaiah got it wrong. Um, so Jesus says nothing about what will actually happen in Gehenna here. The only place where he actually mentions what will happen in Gehenna is Matthew 10, 28. Um, and again, does he mention suffering? Does he mention torment in Matthew 10, 28? No, he says that they will be destroyed. I'm not sure exactly what Turretin fans' point was in pointing to the parallel passage in Luke. Um, maybe we could go over that in in cross-examination, but um, 
you can't overturn the clear teaching of Matthew 10 by looking at a parallel passage in Luke. The argument that I made in my opening about Matthew 10 stands on its own. Um, Jesus says that both body and soul will be destroyed, and destroyed clearly can only mean one thing there. Uh, moving on to Gehenna, or hell, I, I felt that in his opening, Turretin Fan was kind of just assuming that when hell is mentioned, it refers to a place of suffering. If, if I'm misrepresenting him, he could clarify that later. Um, but he, he has to show where Gehenna is actually explicitly tied to suffering. Where is it tied to torment? Um, as far as inspired scripture is concerned, Gehenna is not a place of suffering. It's a place of slaughter. It's a place of infamy because there's just going to be corpses and corpses piled there. Um, now, Gehenna is actually mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, it was called Topheth, and it's mentioned in a number of passages. Jeremiah 7.30, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 19, 1-9, um, Jer- or Chronicles 33, 2 Chronicles 28. Um, let me read you Jeremiah 7 real quick. It says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, the valley of the son of Hinnom is the Hebrew form of Gehenna. To burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in, bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. Same thing is mentioned in Jeremiah and, and Chronicles. Uh, the passages I mentioned in Chronicles say more about uh, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. But it's the same idea. This is a valley of slaughter. Jeremiah explicitly says this. this is a valley of slaughter. This is a place where people will be slaughtered and their bodies will be thrown there. They won't be buried, which in Jewish culture was seen as a curse, as something disgraceful and humiliating. So in none of these passages that mention the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, do we see anything about suffering? So it's not legitimate to just assume that when the New Testament uses the expression Gehenna or hell, that it's referring to a place of suffering. It's not. It's referring to a place of death, slaughter, and destruction. Um, moving on, Jude 7. Um, again, a Jude 7 is a passage that works in favor of conditionalism. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude says that the punishment in Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of eternal fire. Um, but what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Were the people tormented, you know, for, for days and months and years? No, they were wiped out. Um, so maybe we could discuss in cross-examination exactly again why he thinks this somehow helps his case. I, I just don't see it at all. Um, Let's see what else he said. I'm pulling up my notes here. Um, oh, of course, uh, Matthew 25. How could I forget? Matthew 25:46. Uh, let me go ahead and, and turn to it really quick so I could quote it. 
uh, Matthew 25:46. Now, this passage is, you know, this is a good refutation, I think, of of universalism. But I don't see how it works as a refutation against my view. Jesus says that some will go into everlasting life and others will go to everlasting punishment. Now, I agree that the punishment will be everlasting. I, I fully agree with that. It will be an everlasting destruction, an everlasting death. The destruction will never be overturned. It will never be reversed. It's going to be permanent. And so in that sense, the punishment will be everlasting. The fact is that in this passage, Jesus is not going to detail about what the punishment consists of. All he says is that the punishment will be everlasting, and I fully agree with that. So I concede the parallelism between everlasting as used for the wicked and the righteous. I concede all of that. But the fact is that Matthew 25, like every other passage Turretin Fan mentioned, just says nothing about torment. It never mentions torment. It never mentions pain, suffering, or anything like that. The punishment will last forever. The question is, what is that punishment? Turretin Fan, like many traditionalists, just kind of assumes, well, the punishment is torment. Well, no, that's not what the passage says. All it says is that the punishment will last forever. trying to find anything else he said um he said he said quite a bit in his opening and his rebuttal um john 5 the resurrection of life and the resurrection to a judgment again i don't see how this works against my view at all i i fully affirm that there will be a universal resurrection um and that's the point only some will rise to life that implies that the others will not rise to life that the others will rise to death. So, uh, I don't see how this works in favor of everlasting torment. Again, it doesn't mention torment. It doesn't mention anything about everlasting, um, duration of torment. That's for sure. Um, I, I fully agree that the wicked will suffer a harsh punishment in the hands of, of the Lord. That is a, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Um, you know, being burned alive is the image of final punishment. That that does not seem like a pleasant thing. It seems like a very painful, horrible thing to to undergo. So um, I, I do not agree with the the view of my position that well, people will just kind of like die, and so it's it's not really a, a bad thing. No, it's it's going to be a terrible thing. There likely will be a measure of pain and suffering involved. So I don't disagree that there will be pain or that there will be torment. I just don't agree that it will last forever. And I've seen no evidence presented that it will last forever. Still just going through my notes here. I only have a few minutes left. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.19, that, that was interesting. I mean, uh, you know, so Turretin Fan seems to affirm that, again, all human beings are immortal. Um, and he, he strangely goes to Ecclesiastes 3.19, but Ecclesiastes 3.19 is not referring to a soul. That, that's not at all what's in view there. What's in view is the, the, the spirit, or sometimes it's translated the breath. This is the breath of life. Um, that is spoken of in in Genesis when God forms man out of dust. So you have this dust creature sitting there that's not alive, and God breathes into it his breath, the breath of life. So Ecclesiastes is saying that when the creature dies, the body goes back to the earth, and the breath 
returns to God who gave it, right? Our, our life, as it were, is on loan from God. And when we die, he receives back our breath, our life force, as it were. Um, but you know, Ecclesiastes is, is, is not speaking here of some sort of immaterial soul. That's really reading it into the text. And uh, I don't believe any Jewish inter- interpreter would read Ecclesiastic 3.19 and say, oh, he's talking about some sort of immaterial, immortal soul. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and end it there. I'm, I'm getting a warning on time, and I'm not sure if I have anything else left in my notes here. Okay, so those were Turretin fans and Ronnie Demler's opening statements and rebuttals. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, which will contain the cross-examination, questions and answers, and closing statements. <laughs>